Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies, a show on the Pitcherless Podcast Network where we dive into the stories, myths, legends, and players who helped shape the game of baseball throughout its history across the world, and the players who helped make it the game we love and help make us love the game itself. I'm your host, Daniel Port. Thanks, everyone, for being here. As always, I'm very excited about this week's episode. We're going to do part two of our sort of season update, taking a look at all the current players that are on our list and seeing how the season has changed for them and if that means we're going to move them around the list a bit or if it's changed anything in the rankings for them, either up or down, and uh, really take a look at what the results of this season mean for their legacy. And as I mentioned last episode, it's hard because... I could have either done this podcast where I didn't talk about current players because of how much things would change from year to year or because players wouldn't have a lot of experience or things like that. But that seemed like not – it felt like not accurate, obviously. It felt like I was leaving a decent chunk of the current story of baseball on the table if I didn't do that. That's what we're doing here this week is we're taking a look at really the top players on the list that are currently still playing and seeing how this season went for them and if anything changed. So in part one, we went over a bunch of different players. We talked about James Paxton. We talked about Cabrian Hayes. We moved up all both of them up. We didn't move Paxton up very far, but we moved Cabrian Hayes up a couple spots. Really started talking about how we're excited about seeing potentially a breakout for him this year. We talked about Kyle Hendricks and actually moved him down a little bit. Same for Evan Longoria. We talked about Kenley Jansen. It really gave a huge bump up to Ronald Acuna Jr. and had a huge discussion about his MVP season and what that meant for his legacy. We talked about Corey Kluber. We talked about moving a lot of players around like Jose Altuve and Jose Ramirez and really give a huge bump up to Freddie Freeman. It was a very interesting discussion of, of the players that we looked at this season. And so if any of those players sound interesting to you, I definitely suggest taking a look back at last episode and getting a feel for how we, we do these discussions. Now, we left off there. To give you an idea, that was right around... Hmm, Let's see. So if we're looking at Freddie Freeman, that was at number 34 on the list is where Freeman got moved up to. And that leaves us looking at our number 32 player on the list. That's Bryce Harper. But before we jump into Bryce Harper, I want to do, in case you weren't there for the last episode or just need a refresher, let's look at the list again here. And I won't read the whole thing here because we're essentially going to be dealing primarily in the top. 30 or so players. So why don't we look at that? At number one, we have Sadaharu O. At number two, we have Satchel Page. At number three, we have Ted Williams. At number four, we have Josh Gibson. At number five, we have Barry Bonds. At number six, we have Mickey Mantle. At number seven, we have Greg Maddox. At number eight, we have Mike Trout. At number nine, we have Ricky Henderson. At number 10, we have Ken Griffey Jr. At number 11, we have Ichiro Suzuki. At number 12, we have George Brett. At number 13, we have Adrian Beltre. Number 14, we have Shohei Otani. Number 15, we have Clayton Kershaw. At number 16, we have Eddie Murray. At number 17, we have Eddie, uh, Edgar Martinez. Number 18, we have Sandy Koufax. At number 19, we have Tony Gwen. At number 20, we have Hank Greenberg. At number 21, we have Nolan Arenado. Number 22, we have Joey Votto. At number 23, we have Scott Rowland. Number 24, we have Ron Santo. Number 25 is Kenny Lofton. 
Number 26 is Manny Machado. Number 27 is Eddie Josh. At number 28 is Johan Santana. Number 29 is Willie Stargell. At number 30 is David Ortiz. 31 is Steve Carlton. At number 32 is Robin Yount. And at number 33 is Bryce Harper. We just moved Freddie Freeman up to number 34. And then Mariano Rivera sits at number 35. So that's like the top 35, so to say, of the 77 players that we have looked at, talked about, and ranked for this podcast. Now, though, before we jump into our first player for today in Bryce Harper, uh, let's actually take our first break here real quick, and then we'll dive right into uh, into Bryce Harper. Now, since we ended the last episode on Freddie Freeman, we're going to start today with Bryce Harper. And Bryce Harper had both a like historically interesting season and a, and a tough one to judge it subjectively right because there's the mythology of the what this season will be looked at from years to come and also the and really the last about 365 days or so for Bryce Harper and then the reality of it statistically and numerically and things like that as we know we talked about this last year Harper man when you think about it so Bryce Harper injures himself last year plays through it but basically he's told he has to have Tommy John surgery. He plays through it through the end of the season. He DHs. It goes on that historic run of the World Series with the Phillies, and they lose. But he is incredible in the playoffs, playing through all of that. And he has Tommy John surgery. Comes back and misses a decent chunk of the season. He played in just 126 games this season, and 89 of those games he played at DH. And then he was actually moved for to first base for 36 games. And it's actually been announced recently that he will play first base all of next season as well. Actually, I think this is a good thing for Harper. For one thing, he was not a very good outfielder. For all the things that Bryce Harper did incredibly well, defense was not one of them. And so I think this is good in that, A, we get that defense out of the outfield, moving to first base, where he actually was pretty solid. And I think it's going to put less wear and tear on his body because the only thing keeping Bryce Harper out of the Hall of Fame in a lot of ways is his body. And I think removing him from the outfield will reduce the wear and tear on his body a little bit, will help him stay healthier playing at first base. So I'm glad to see that move for the record. And he had a really, I mean, a genuinely excellent season considering what he was coming back from and the fact that he was learning a new position and, you know, coming back from the injury, he was. He hit 293 with a 401 OBP and a 900 OPS, which is good for a 146 OPS plus. He had 21 home runs, 29 doubles, 72 RBIs, and 84 runs. Well, he would have hit 30s, probably 30-something home runs if he had gotten a full season in. Probably 100, close to 100 RBIs, close to 100 runs. It would have been a really great season if he could have played a full season. So when he was healthy, he was very good. And he was worth 3.7 war in the season. He won a Silver Slugger Award. And put that in perspective, he won a Silver Slugger Award while playing just three quarters of the season. That's how good he was when he played. And he finished 12th in MVP voting despite playing just 126 games. That's remarkable. It's incredible. It speaks both to how well he played and to how highly we, not we, I'm not a part of the voting media or anything, but how highly the voting media like values Harper and, and values what Harper has done. And we've always said the MVP can be a bit narrative driven. He only finished 12th in it, but still it can be a bit narrative driven. If you take the narrative of playing through the injury 
having Tommy John and then coming back to being excellent is just a it's a cool story. It's the kind of thing you write movies about, right? And that's what I was talking about. It is a bit hard sometimes to separate yourself from the story, from the mythology of this season for Bryce Harper. And then you look at the numbers and go, oh, I mean, I guess it's good. And it really is remarkably good. Again, a 146 OBS plus, it was very good. But you would think to some degree at a down year, but really when you think about it in that context of the, of the story, uh, it w- really wasn't a down year at all. He was fantastic. Now let's talk playoffs, though, for Harper. Um, you'd have to wonder, considering how magical, how incredible he was in the playoffs last year, if he could follow that up this year. And he has a genuinely fantastic playoffs for the Phillies yet again. He struggles a bit in the wild card series against Miami, but goes absolutely insane in the NLDS against Atlanta. And it's worth noting, one, Philly and Atlanta hate each other. They, they are arch rivals in that division, like a three-way arch rivalry between Atlanta, Philly, and, and the Mets. And so obviously beating Atlanta means even more there in Philly. But then you also throw in that Atlanta was like the prohibitive favorite. They were the best team in baseball all year long. They were the best offense in baseball. They had great pitching. Everyone was putting their money on Atlanta to come out of the National League as in the World Series. And Philly takes them down, beats them. And a large chunk of it is because of Harper. He hits 462 with three home runs, five RBIs, and five runs scored across four games. Again, they beat him in four games then. That's awesome. That's incredible, considering they were really the underdogs going into that game. And this just adds to the playoff mystique of Bryce Harper, who has been excellent in the playoffs his entire career. And then they go into the NLCS, and while he doesn't hit for great average, he hits two more home runs across the seven-game series against the Diamondbacks. And so while the Phils do fall short in seven games, Harper does play pretty well. He had a, a good OPS. He hit for good power uh, across that series. This actually ends up bringing his postseason home run total to 16 home runs and his career postseason OPS to 996. That's right. Across 49 games, he has a near one OPS. It's incredible. That's that's it's really cool to see how time and time again you put Bryce Harper in the playoffs and he will rise to the occasion. It again is the kind of thing we do t- tell myths and legends about 20, 30 years from now when we talk about Bryce Harper. I think it's really cool. I thought it was a very good season for Bryce Harper. It doesn't really change how I feel about his legacy or his trajectory at all. It's all about health for Harper. Can he stay healthy? When he does, he wins MVP awards. It's that simple. And he just has to stay healthy all season. Now, looking at what this says for him on the list. So right now, as I think I mentioned before, he is at number 33 on the list right now. And in front of him at number 32 is Robin Yount. Now, this is going to be an interesting comparison. Young played for eight more seasons than Harper has so far, which can always make making these comparisons a little difficult. Because, of course, like Young has more war. He's got 30 more war than Harper. Young obviously leaves him in games, played appearances, hits, RBIs, stolen bases, all these things are, like, cumulative. But he actually, it's interesting, because you would think of Young as, like, a contact hitter more than and Bryce Harper not. But Young actually only leads Harper by .004 points of batting average for their career 
and Yount was an absurdly good defender and much better than Harper. But uh, Harper already leads Yount in home runs. He's actually got to beat right now an OBP slugging OPS and OPS plus. And that's always a little tough. One of the hard things with doing this is that, like, when you're comparing them to uh, players who finished their career, is that Harper hasn't had the, you know, the downside of his career, where where it starts to fade a little bit because of age and all that stuff, where Yount did. And so it's not necessarily fair to judge things like OBP, slugging, and OPS, um, because Harper hasn't had the decline yet. But nonetheless, he is better than him as of right now in those numbers. Both players have won two MVPs, and Harper's still young. He's only like 32 or something like that. He easily could still win more uh, and surpass that. So I often will say, I don't ever want to bet someone is going to win an MVP because it's incredibly hard to win an MVP. If you take two players who are tied in their MVPs, it's easier to bet that the player who's still playing and is still in his prime has a better chance of winning another MVP than the player who's already obviously not playing anymore. So I give Harper a little bit of an edge there, all things considered. Then Harper has nearly double the all-star appearances that Yount had, and they both won the same amount of Silver Slugger awards. Then you throw in, obviously Yount was also very good in the playoffs. Harper is a whole nother level of postseason success, and I think it matters. I talked about this last week, I think a little bit when I talked about, I want to say it was moving... Freeman compared to, to Harper, and one of the things that I talked about was, well, I think in some ways Freddie Freeman's been in the league longer than Bryce Harper, but I think Freddie Freeman, to a certain degree, has had a an equal to, uh, if not better, career so far than Harper. One thing that is different is that Freddie Freeman had never been the face of baseball. Bryce Harper has, and you could argue outside of Shohei Otani is the face of baseball, and as I think I've tried to make clear, while yes, this is about who is the best players in baseball and who are the best players in the history of baseball, I've mentioned before that the whole thing in this is about telling the story of baseball, about telling the history of baseball, which I think goes beyond just statistics. It goes beyond just, I hate to say it, but just objective truth, right? And sometimes we have to consider cultural things. And one of them is that Bryce Harper, for a large chunk of his career has been the face of baseball. He was the prodigy. He was, I think of him, as, I think of him in this comparison in the Bryce Harper, but he's our baseball generation's LeBron James in that way that we followed him from high school and obsessed over Bryce Harper. And I think that counts that he, we look back in 30 years and we are going to talk about Bryce Harper because of the hype, because of all of the things surrounding him as well, in addition to him being excellent at baseball and performing well at the major league level. And you can't quite say the same thing for, for Yount. Yount was a, was a prodigy in his own. It was just, it was very different. I don't really recall reading about Robin Yount as the face of baseball. The guy you're like, oh, you go to someone who doesn't know baseball and you go, name me a baseball player right now. And people would say Bryce Harper. And I don't know if that is the same for Robin Yount. So I think that counts in a big way. So I'm actually going to move Harper above Robin Yount for that. I, I think that's a place where you can make the argument that while Robin Yount may have accomplished more so far in his career, and again, he's played eight more years than Harper has, I think it's fair to make the argument that I think Harper might end up being more important to Major League Baseball, historically speaking.
I'm going to move him up ahead, Robin Yount. But then he runs into a another interesting sort of debate, which above him there is Steve Carlton at number 30, 31. Yeah, at number 31. And Steve Carlton's an interesting case. I've been a little hard on Steve Carlton because I think that Carlton, if you look through his career, is ups and downs. He either has an elite season or a trash season, and half the time, nowhere in between. And I've never really seen a player like that. I've seen players who, they may start off slow and then peak and then tail off or just even completely collapse. But that's so different than just like, he'd have one year where he'd win a Cy Young and be easily the most dominant pitcher in baseball, throwing like 300 innings. And then the next two seasons would be replacement level. And then he'd go back to being elite again. It was just very up and down and a very weird career. So sometimes I'm a little hard on Steve Carlton. I think at some point I need to do a a reevaluation of Steve Carlton and just how I feel about him and see if he needs to move up the list a little bit. But... In general, Steve Carlton, I think, is better than I sometimes have a tendency to give him credit for. And he had 90 war over his career. I don't think Harper can catch that. I, I think injuries have piled up too much for him. I think that has robbed him of enough of his career. You add in also that, obviously, the COVID season in 2020 probably robbed him of a good 4 or 5 war, too. And I think that there's just a hard part that's getting the 90 war would be really tough, considering Harper's only in... These, let me, let me check here. It's going to make for scintillating podcast stuff while I, while I look at this because for some reason I didn't put it in my notes. Yeah, Harper's at 46.2 war. I'd have a hard time here at, well, he's 31, trying to get to 90. I think that would be pretty tough for him. And then Carlton's won four Cy Youngs, a triple crown. He's won a gold glove and he's won 10 all-star appearances. That's just tough, I think, to, 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 to try and lay on Harper to kind of say, I expect to get to four MVPs and a triple crown at some point. And 90 war, I just don't think that he can get there. And that's not a knock on Bryce Harper. I think Bryce Harper is a future Hall of Famer. I I do firmly believe that. So, like I said, it's an interesting case. It's an interesting debate. But I don't think he gets to to Carlton here. And it's tough because I think Carlton absolutely is way more like full-on stinker, just bad seasons than Harper has. And that does count for something with me. But, I mean, again, 90 war, triple crown, four Cy Youngs. It's, it's tough to match that. And again, we haven't seen Harper's decline yet. So it's it's hard to figure out what that will look like and use that against Carlton. I, I just think Carlton's resume is, is better. Now, if Harper can stay healthy and get somewhere in the 75-plus war pace, we get to 75 to 80 war, then we can, I think we'll revisit that. I think that, that that changes things a lot. I do think the move to first base is going to help him with that because he will stay healthier by the nature of just putting less wear and tear on his body, less diving around and running into walls and all that stuff. I, I think he could get there, but uh, I can't do it right now, if that makes sense. So with that in mind, I think we bump Harper up one spot and he becomes the no, the new number 32 on the list here. So then the next player to talk about is Manny Machado. Now, Manny Machado is a another hitter who, in fact, actually what's going to be a reoccurring trend here amongst the elite hitters that we're talking about today that are currently still playing is injuries really affected the season. Almost all of these players 
were hurt in one way, shape, or form and, and struggled with injuries, and Machado is no exception. He played in just 138 games this year thanks to an elbow injury for the Padres. He had actually, like Harper, he DH'd for a decent chunk of the season. I believe he was diagnosed with tennis elbow, essentially. And if you've never had tennis elbow, it's interesting. I don't, I've never had it either. I've had like signs of it because I think I've mentioned before, I play tennis. So it, it's a, there's a soreness in the elbow and in the arm. And it can, for me, it never got bad, but you can really, it can be debilitating. I've seen it end people's careers in tennis. It just, it hurts so much. And obviously you put your ligaments at risk. You do all kinds of different things. It's obviously a tough injury for Machado and especially one that's just, there's only one way to help tennis elbow and that's rest and then uh, rehabilitation, right? So it's a, there wasn't much he could really do with that injury. And it's also not an injury that he can necessarily just go have surgery, come back in six weeks and he's better. Like it's, it's a tough injury. Uh, it's more of a, it can be chronic. So let's see how that affects him in the future. But he had a good season when he played. He hit 258 with 30 home runs. He had 91 RBIs, 75 runs, 21 doubles, and a 782 OPS, which is good for a 115 OPS plus. He was good. He was an above average player when he was healthy. And, and with tennis, I'll be wondering, was he really ever healthy? Because again, that's a, a cumulative. It could be lingering and you can play through it so it's a question of how long did he try to play through it how long did he do the gutting it out before he finally had to miss time machado was worth 2.9 war on the season and that gets him up to 54 war and he's 31 so i'm not pessimistic at all right now about machado getting to what i think was the magic sort of 70 war number set for third basements by scott Rowland getting into the hall of fame and ron santo getting in the hall of fame that I think he can still get there. That's only 16 more war, and he's only 31. I, I certainly think that's doable. I think he's on pace for a Hall of Fame career. I think he's going to be a Hall of Famer, or should be at least. I'm not. Nothing has really changed for me this season. Uh, now, obviously, if he shows up, because as I mentioned, tennis elbow can linger, uh, sometimes for years. I, I think that it will change if I see that still affecting him coming into this season. Then I'll start to worry about that. But I think for right now, I think this still keeps him on that 70 war pace. I think he's still got a really good shot at that. So this doesn't really change my view on Machado much at all, other than keeping him moving forward and confirming what I thought he was going to do. And then also it's worth noting, and I think this is going to be the big thing that's going to push him forward a little bit, is he had 30 more home runs. So even if he had like an offseason, missed a bunch of time, he hit 30 home runs. So that you're talking now getting him up to, he's at 313 career home runs. If he can even do two to three more seasons of that, up until like, you know, when he gets to the 33, 34 years old, that puts him at 400 home runs. And that that's a big number uh, and an important number for your legacy. Now, the Padres did not make the playoffs. So we don't really have a postseason record to talk about with Machado for this season. So we don't have to spend too much time there. But uh, we can talk about the list and where this changes things for Machado and how we feel about them. So he's right now at number 26. And the question is, does this move him up ahead of Kenny Lofton, who is there at number 25? Now, those who are loyal listeners will know, I love Kenny Lofton. Kenny Lofton is my favorite player ever. Uh, I have a hard time sometimes being objective about Kenny Lofton. I grew up watching him in Cleveland my whole life. I just... 
I adore Kenny Lofton. He's my favorite player ever, period. So I'm going to try and be objective here. But I need you all to know it hurts me in my soul every time I move a player past Kenny Lofton. So with that all being said, I I think by the time all is said and done, they're very different players, obviously. Machado likely eclipses Lofton in seasons played. I think Lofton only played like 16 probably eclipse him in games played he's already well ahead of him in rbis home runs slugging ops it's not as much as you think for the record it's only like 0.3 points or so difference between the two of them so because lofton walked so much that he kept his ops pretty elevated for a leadoff hitter but he is ahead of him there they they have the same amount of all-star appearances already so you got to imagine machado surpasses him there while often has two more gold gloves at a harder position, that isn't like a significant gap either. And it's just tough. I think that's a, these are two hard players to compare because they're so different. Um, but actually, if you look at it, they're almost equal in defensive war which is wild to me. Uh, I think Lofton is like 15.5 defensive war and Machado is 14. So they're right neck and neck there. And, and Machado is a criminally underrated defender. So that makes a lot of sense. And it's hurt him a lot of times spending a large chunk of his career behind other third basemen who are defensively elite and winning gold gloves. I, I think it doesn't necessarily shock me that they're that close to defensive war. But I think when you compare all of that and... You look at those numbers, while I love Kenny Lofton, who sits at 68 war for his career. I, again, I think Machado gets there. I think he gets to 70 war. And if you do that, then throw in all these numbers he's already surpassed Lofton in and all of that, I, I think Machado gets the nod there. So I think you move Machado up ahead of Lofton. And then we're looking at Ron Santo at number 24. And Santo at 70.5 war and hit 342 home runs. And obviously, I think he catches Santo in war. As I've said many times, I think that's where Machado gets to his spread on 70. And he could surpass 342 home runs as early as this year. He, he hit 330. He's at 313, I want to say. And so he hits another 30 home run season, and he's surpassed Santo in home runs there. And I think, you know, again, Machado's only like 31. There's an idea he's probably got a couple 30 home run seasons in him. So can, can Machado get to 400 home runs? I think that's really possible. And now you, you start comparing two elite defensive third basemen. Santos one of the best defensive third basemen of all time. That I think when you look at them pretty similarly, suddenly Machado's got like 100 home runs on him. It, it becomes pretty open and shut when you look at that. Pretty much everything else about their careers and their numbers are like identical in terms of like OPS, OBP, all these different things. They're like practically the same player. It would just be that that um, Machado has like 100 more home runs. Seems pretty cut and dry in that sense, especially considering he's only three All-Star appearances behind Santo. You got to imagine he gets gets there, gets pretty close. He's only three Gold Gloves behind him. Astonishing, actually, has more defensive WAR already in his career than Santo did throughout his career. Obviously, it just again, Machado is very underrated as a defender, and I think that when you look at it from that perspective, that they were nearly equal defenders. That and then that Machado will have more home runs and, and match him in nearly everything else. I think it's pretty open and shut that he goes above Santo as well here. Now, what about Scott Rowland at number 23? The guy who his name comes up because he's like the barometer now for Hall of Famers, and that's that's not meant as a diss. That's that's a good thing. 
I'm glad from the Scott Rowland episode. I believe he is a Hall of Famer. I do believe he deserves to go in the Hall of Fame. So I, I'm glad to use him as a as a guide for where I think players should get to to make the Hall of Fame. I'm glad to do that, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad to see Roland be in that discussion. But this is interesting. So if you look at Santo versus Roland, they're practically identical players, almost the same player, right? Other than Roland has an MVP, and he's won a championship, and he's won more gold gloves. But their numbers on the base level are very similar. And so at some point, if you're like, oh, we're going to have to move him ahead of Santo, you have to make the same argument against Roland. And Roland only had about 316 home runs for his career, so obviously, barring catastrophic trouble, Machado should easily surpass Roland in home runs as well this year. And same thing for runs and RBIs and all those other numbers. He should easily surpass him in a couple seasons as well. Uh, should catch up to him in, in war because it's right, right around 70 as well. I think I think right now you look at him and go Machado over him. Machado doesn't have Roland's MVP. He doesn't have the championship with the gold gloves, like I said. But he should match him in all-star games or maybe even make more all-star games than, than Roland did. And should end up pretty close to him in defensive war as well. So I think if Machado gets the 400 home runs, which he should, I, I have a hard scenario envisioning he doesn't have at least 90-something home runs in him, barring, again, major injury. I think if he gets the 400 home runs, I think it, it's a pretty, just like Santo, pretty open and shut. The MVP makes it harder, and you have to ask yourself, how heavily do you weigh that MVP? But, but I think 100 home runs outweighs an MVP. In my, in my opinion. So I think, I don't love it, but I think right now I put Machado ahead of Scott Rowland at number 23. Okay. So then next we look at Joey Votto. Now this one's a hard one because if there's a player I love nearly as much as Kenny Lofton, it's Joey Votto. And I think if you view it solely from the perspective of cold, hard facts, Machado likely blows by Votto pretty easily. He's only 10 war behind Votto's 64 war. He's way younger, so he's ten wars, nothing. He can he can put together three three war seasons and get there. It, it's not. I, I think he's obviously going to surpass Votto in war. Now he doesn't have Votto's MVP. Nor would he. You look at so you start looking at Votto's career numbers, and he, knowing that he's had a couple really down seasons recently, this these numbers are remarkable. He's a career 294 batting average with a career 409 OBP, 920 career OPS. He's a career 144 OPS plus hitter. Like, those are numbers Machado can't even like sniff at. And again, this is before we get into Machado's decline, where likely his career numbers should go down a little bit. So I think I think you throw those in, and then you look at the cultural part of it. As, as I've said, we've kind of... Could you tell the story of baseball in this current generation without Manny Machado? You shouldn't, but you could. Can you do that without Joey Votto? I don't think you can. He is our generation's Ted Williams in terms of his intelligence, the way he thinks about hitting. And that's not to imply Manny Machado is not intelligent. I've said, I would never imply that or think about this, but that is Votto is considered the most cerebral hitter of our generation. And I think that matters. I think he, he's considered the best pure hitter of our generation, the best all-around hitter in that sense. 
Uh, so yeah. I think that matters. That I think in 30 years, if you had to put money on who are we going to be talking about, Manny Machado or Joey Votto, I think we're going to be talking about Joey Votto. And so I think for now, for those reasons plus those career numbers, I give it to Votto, I think, right now. Maybe that's my, my bias coming into play. But I think for now, I still pick Votto. Uh, but it's getting a lot closer uh, than it was even a year ago. For now, I think that's where that's a good spot. We've moved Manny Machado up from number 26 up to number 23. Now, speaking of one Joseph Daniel Votto, obviously he's still in the league, and so we should talk about him. He, he is uh, still right there at number 22. This was largely a lost season for Votto, and you really have to wonder how much Votto still has in the tank. He's trying, uh, but... I, obviously, it's hard to think he just can stay healthy anymore in a season. He played in just 65 games. He had 14 home runs with 38 RBIs and 26 runs scored, being 202 and being worth negative uh, 0.1 more. So, not a great season for Votto. I was really hoping, uh, if you would ask me this time last year, I didn't need like a elite season out of Votto. I just wanted like a two to three war season to get him over that that hump into the 70 war mark. Just a really drive home his Hall of Fame candidacy. But it's just hard to wonder if he's got anything left in the tank. He's a free agent, as I understand it, because there's all that talk of whether or not he played his last game for the Reds, and he got all these standing ovations and said farewell to the Reds fans and all this stuff. And, and you just have to wonder, Fado was a player who he really connected with the city of Cincinnati and really considered that home. There were many times he could have left to try and find a better playoff team. He could have demanded those sort of things and just never left. I don't know if he has it in him to play for another team other than Cincinnati. I don't know if that's something that appeals to him. It's tough in the way that Cincinnati has too many young players coming up right now who who are like elite prospects that you can't really justify bringing him back if he wants to start. I, I think that would be tough. Because I want to say... Who is it that they... Uh, is it going to be Christian Encarnacion Strand who they put at at first base, probably? I think that's a... Uh, let's see what Rasa Resource has for them next year. Scintillating podcast, I know. Yeah, right now, the Christian Encarnacion Strand slotted to play first base. And to be honest, if, you, if you're Cincinnati, you have to do that. You have to give him the playing time. You have to let him grow and play this young team and let them all grow together. Man, Cincinnati's going to be super fun next year. Just out of the, the side note, you look at when you talk about like following a young team, you want to just see young talent in this league. You got TJ Friedel at center field, Matt McLean at second base, Spencer Steer in left field, Christian Encarnacion Strand at first base. Their DH is Jonathan India, according to roster resource at least. They got Will Benson in right field, and then they've got Noel V. Marte at third base, Ellie De La Cruz at shortstop, and then old man Tyler Stevenson at catcher. It's just it's a really fascinating team made up of young, up-and-coming players, and there's even more on the way, and that's before we get into the pitching staff of Hunter Green, Andrew Abbott, Graham Ashcraft, Nick Lodolo, Brandon Williamson. It's, it's a fun team. This is going to be a fun team to watch grow up. But obviously, like, where where does Votto fit into this picture? They have to give that playing time to, to Christian Encarnacion Strand. So, like, where does he go? Who knows? I know there's probably a, always a demand for uh, his mind 
on a team and his mentorship on a team. And he's been well known throughout his career as a mentor. Many players have testified to, to his mentorship and what they taught him about hitting and things like that. But also 202 and does seem like he's losing it a little bit, which, you know, is no diss really to to Joey Votto either at the age he's at and all those things. I think he didn't admit the same thing. So I'll be interested to see if he plays next year. But with that said, obviously it's a Hall of Fame career. I think he's a Hall of Famer. I just don't think that this season did anything to change his career prospects. And I don't think it necessarily did anything to move him around. Especially considering the guy above him is Nolan Arenado. And I, I can't see moving him above Arenado right now. Because I think Arenado is going to eventually surpass him in, in most numbers and things. But, uh, but yeah, I think that this just, I think right now Votto stays put. Because if you look at him versus, say, Roland behind him, if you're asking, should I move him back? No, I don't think so. He's practically already at Roll, uh, Roland's numbers in terms of war and things like that. And again, we're talking about the greatest, like, pure hitter of our generation, the, the, the modern day Ted Williams. You, you can't. Some respect has to be put on that name in that sense. So I think just Votto stays right where he is at number 22. Now, I just mentioned him because we kind of have the streak of in a row of all these players who are modern players right next to each other. But Nolan Arenado is the next player that we talk about at number 21. Now, Arenado had a down year for him. He, He battled a back injury apparently all season. And it wasn't like bad enough to really... He did miss some games, but to really put him like on the IL for long term. But you look at the numbers, and when he had a back injury, it sounds like it hampered him all season long. The num- that makes sense with the numbers that you see. Now this is an age 32 season. He hit 266 with 26 home runs, 93 RBIs, 72 runs scored, and 26 doubles across 144 games. It was the lowest full season OPS of his career since his rookie season. And he was worth just 2.4 war as his defense struggled, too, for really the first time in his career. But again, it's a back injury. Like, we talked about how physically demanding playing third base defense is. And you just have to imagine if his back was was hurting him all season, his defense would probably suffer along with it. That's a trend we'll have to see if that continues on into next season. Because then we'll know if he's in a decline defensively or if it was just an injury-filled season. I'm leaning towards believing that this is just a, an injury-plagued season for, for Arenado and that it's not a trend or a decline. We'll know more in 2024, obviously. If we still see that decline in place or we see the defense continue to lag or things like that, then we, then we know it's more of a decline and maybe injury-related a decline, but still a decline versus just a, a random weird season for him as it seemed to be a weird season for basically everyone in St. Louis. So I'm leaning it being random, but hopefully it is not the start of a trend. Overall, still a good, solid season for him. He was still a valuable player, but not what we expect out of him. And again, has some worrying trends, especially since, again, he needs to get up to 70 war. He's in that same boat as Machado. And he's 32. Every season kind of counts now for him. He's not far off. He's again right in the mid-50s. In war, he doesn't need a lot to get there. but And I think he's still going to get there. I do. Because, again, I think this is just a random season for him. But it's a little worrisome, that's all. That, that's just all I'll say about that. 
Now, where does this go for Arenado? We know who Arenado is, and we know where he's looking. Number 20 right ahead of him is Hank Greenberg. Now, he should he should honestly surpass Greenberg in all major categories, including war this year, as early as this year, because I think he's at 54, and Greenberg had 55 war. He doesn't have Greenberg's two MVPs. He doesn't have the two championships either. But he has, he has 10 more gold gloves than Greenberg, who is not considered a great defender. And he has 20 more defensive war than Greenberg. So, again, when we look at Arnado, we're talking about the best defensive third baseman of his generation, of our generation, so to say. Uh, that obviously weighs pretty heavily. And the interesting question, is it enough to really it boils down to, because I think on sheer playing ability, on pure statistics, Arnado surpasses Greenberg. Question is, does it surpass Greenberg's cultural impact? I mean, Hank Greenberg, probably outside of Sandy Koufax, is probably the most famous Jewish baseball player, probably ever, right? And he played during a cultural time in which America was outright hostile to Jewish people, let alone Jewish players, and really weighed on him. He, you know, played in an era where that was a hot button issue. Like Hank Greenberg's cultural importance and it's importance of telling not just the story of baseball in america but really as part of the story of america is huge it's enormous but with all that being said i think by the time all is said and done arnado is gonna end up beating him by like 20 war in his career if arno can come back and start being healthy again so i think 20 or 15 to 20 war is enough to say Eh, the the cultural, like, wow, incredibly important. It's something we should talk about so much. I think I'm willing to look at Arenado and say he ranks above Hank Greenberg in that sense, it, especially considering some of the other factors and whatnot going into it. Def the defensive things, I, like, for now, I think Arenado goes up ahead of Hank Greenberg. I may revisit that, though, because, like I said, the cultural stuff something I was going to have settle in, and there's the MVPs. But also, Arnado won six platinum gloves. That's not even just saying that he was the best third baseman in baseball defensively. That 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 is an award that six for six separate seasons he was considered the best defender at any position in baseball. That's remarkable. And so I think you throw that with the gold gloves, you throw all these things together. I think it comes out to two MVPs. So I think for right now, and I may come back and revisit this and change my mind. But I think Arenado does go ahead of Hank Greenberg. So we'll, we'll think about that. We'll let that settle in. But for now, Arenado goes ahead of Hank, Green, uh, Hank Greenberg. So now Tony Gwen is the next guy up. And while I should catch Gwen and War, uh, Gwen had 69.2 War, surpassed him, should surpass him in home runs and soon in RBIs. I can't imagine Arenado reaching 15 All-Star appearances or winning eight batting titles or getting three more Silver Sluggers to get ahead of Gwen's seven. And I don't know if it'll, again, culturally reach Tony Gwen's popularity. It's hard to... Tony Gwen was synonymous with baseball in his time period. He was in many ways one of the faces of the game at his peak in a way that Arenado hasn't been. Gwen was actually, for the record, is worth more in OPS Plus than Arenado at 132. Now, while Arenado is a much better defender, there was a period of time where Gwen was an elite defender and then fell off as he got older and, and whatnot. 
but and Arnaud is obviously a better power hitter than Gwen. But I think you look at some of those accomplishments I've read off, you look at his cultural place in the game, again, it'd be hard to tell the story of baseball without Tony Gwen. Like, you just can't do it. That's how important he was to how, to baseball at that time period. I, th- I think for now, obviously Arnold's not even going to sniff 3,000 hits. You throw in those accomplishments, you throw in the Hall of Fame status. I think, considering they'll probably end up at the same spot uh, war-wise, career-wise, I think we'll keep him behind Tony Gwen for right now. Again, he has, starts having like an elite season or gets an MVP or something will change our minds here. I think for right now, he's behind Gwen. And so that would move Arenado up a spot to, uh, like I said, ahead of Hank Greenberg and would make him the new number 20 on our list between Tony Gwen and Hank Greenberg. Now we have three players left. And I think before we get into them, we have Clayton Kershaw, Shohei Otani, and Mike Trout left. Before we do so, though, I think let's take our last break here, and then we'll come in, come back, we'll dive into those three players, and we'll we'll call it a Saturday. How's that sound? Welcome back. Looking at Kershaw, Clayton Kershaw, who's who we're going to talk about, and I think what's fascinating is I think if you ask most people off the off the cuff, what did you think of Clayton Kershaw's season? Don't look at statistics, don't do anything. What was your impression of Clayton Kershaw's season? I think people talk about it like negatively, a weird way. And quietly, Clayton Kershaw had a fantastic season. And I feel like no one was talking about it. Yeah, with the caveat of obviously he's throwing fewer innings than ever. He only made 24 starts. And usually I like to think of 32 as like what you think of as like a full season, right? But when he pitched, man, was he good. Uh, over the over 131.2 innings, he had a 2.46 ERA with 137 strikeouts and just 40 walks uh, and a 1.063 ERA. That's incredible. It's just a that is an awesome season considering he's at 35 years old with nearly 3,000 innings to his name. I think that's pretty darn good. He was worth 3.7 WAR and he was an All Star for the 10th time in his career. Now. May, think about it this way. May was the only month he had a monthly ERA over 2.33. Now, it was rough. It was a 5.55 ERA over 24.1 innings, but every other month was excellent. Again, every other month had an ERA below 2.33. His June was particularly good as he made five starts, winning four games with a 1.09 ERA, giving up just four earned runs with a 0.879 whip and 30 strikeouts and 33 innings pitched. Just an incredible month. <laughs> That's just wild. You have four and runs in the entire month. Just crazy. Now, this season, that 3.7 war brings his total up to 79.9 war. And I think I've said this before, I don't think he's going to quite get... I think you're looking at right around three war is going to be what Kershaw is going to start doing for as long as he chooses to do this. That's what he's going to do. And because I just can't... I, I can't imagine he getting him getting over 150 innings in a season anymore. I don't think it's back, and I don't think I don't think the various injuries will allow him to do that. He's also 35; like he's at that point where you get there. And but with that being said, 80 wars of perfectly for a guy who's thrown 3,000 innings uh, is pretty good. I'm pretty. I think he could be pretty happy with that. Now, the other side of the coin for the season is. As we know, Clayton Kershaw has a reputation for not showing up in the postseason, and unfortunately, that reared its ugly head again 
this season. He makes one start in the NLDS against the Diamondbacks and gets demolished, giving up three runs and just uh, .1 innings pitched. The Dodgers going to lose that series. Just who knows what it is about Kershaw in the playoffs. It's not as bad as the media and everyone likes to make it out to be. I think if you go back and listen to the Kershaw episode, I talk about that. But it's still not great. And I don't know if it really runs out of gas or if he's always injured when he comes around the time. But he struggles in the playoffs. and It's really hard. It's really hard to see. Now, it'll be interesting to see what Clayton Kershaw chooses to do from here. He He's a, technically a free agent, right? And he just had surgery to repair, I'm going to really butcher this, the gleniohumeral ligaments and capsule in his shoulder. And likely, if he does come back in 2024, won't be back until the midway point of the season. And it's just a tough, that's a tough time to be a free agent, if that makes sense. You'd like to have the contract security, going undergoing that kind of surgery and missing half the year, because... It's going to be tough for a team to sign him saying, hey, we're willing to wait for you to come back. Now, they should because it's Clayton Kershaw, and he was still amazing last year. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, Kershaw has claimed he hopes to pitch in 2024. That That is his goal. And I don't – he wants – pretty much everyone figures he'll either pitch for the Dodgers or the Rangers because he's from Texas, eventually he'll pitch back in his home a town and whatnot. But uh, and like, uh, let's be honest, hear me out. If if Kershaw wants to pitch in 2024, I don't know how one of those two teams doesn't pick him up. It, it seems like a no-brainer. It's just money at that point to get a pitcher who, when he pitches, is elite still. I don't know how you don't put that on your team, especially someone like the Dodgers, who I think is actually hurting for pitching. Uh, it would be weird to see them let him go, but I think one of those two teams signs him. I, I just can't imagine that, that not happening. He was worth 3.7 war. <laughs> Like, that's a valuable player. So I imagine if Kershaw wants to pitch, someone will sign him. Now, in terms of him continuing to pitch, there is some history at stake here. Uh, in terms of his legacy, at, at 79.9 war, if he could, say, put up another 3-4 war season, he could surpass Tom Glavin, Justin Verlander, Nolan Ryan, Mike Mussina, John Clarkson, and Pedro Martinez in war. So it's not like there's not like, nothing on the line, so to say. Now, looking at it, that's kind of Kershaw's season and where it sits. We'll be interested to see what he does in the offseason. But in terms of looking at him on the list, this one, there's not as much suspense. Ahead of him at number 14 is Shohei Otani, who we're going to talk about here in a minute, who just won the MVP and is a historical player we've never seen the like of before. I just can't imagine putting Kershaw past him in a year where Kershaw pitched only 130 innings and Otani won the MVP. So I think right now... uh, He'll stay behind Otani. Now, because we're about to move Otani up a little bit here in a second, not to give away, you know, spoilers. But uh, you could ask, would Kershaw go ahead of Adrian Beltre, who's right ahead of Otani right now? And I wouldn't do that. Beltre had uh, 90 war and, you know, 400-plus home runs. I, I think based on, if you were to ask me, does anything change from where I had him last year based on the season? No, I don't think so. I think Kershaw just stays put based on what he has accomplished this season. He comes back and puts another two seasons together or something, gets in the mid-80s in war. And then I'd probably put him ahead of Beltre, because then the four Cy Youngs really give him that extra boost to get past him in war. But for now, like I said, I think Beltre's got 93.5 war, 477 home runs, 
was one of the greatest, if not the greatest third base defender of his generation. For now, Beltre will stay ahead of Kershaw. So Kershaw just stays put here at number 15. Now, we just mentioned him again, and as I buried the lead, we're going to we're gonna be talking about Shohei Otani here quite a bit. Shohei Otani has an incredible season. There aren't actual words in English English dictionary to like describe this season. Historic, sublime, almost supernatural. That's how good this season was. He wins his second MVP award in three years, and if you ask me, he should have been three straight MVP awards with a f- absolutely fantastic 10-war season. And at first, like, just 10-war? I want to point out there. He played in just 135 games. So, like, he put up 10-war in 135 games. Probably would have been, a, like, an 11-12 war season if he stayed healthy throughout the entire season. Oh, and he played in 135 games and was so good, he won the MVP award. Why? Because he hit 44 home runs with a 304 batting average, 412 OBP, and a 1.066 OPS, which is good for a 184 OPS plus. With 95 home runs, 102 runs scored, 26 doubles, 8 triples, and 20 stolen bases. That's just as a hitter, for the record. That's already an MVP season. Just as a hitter, MVP season, right there. And then you also have to factor in they chipped in a really fantastic season at the mound, throwing 132 innings pitched with a 3.14 ERA and with 167 strikeouts and a 1.061 whip. Uh, I, I I can't – he almost had a Cy Young season and then an MVP hitter season. Like, I just – we have never seen a player like Shohei Otani. There's never been anything like it, and I don't know if we ever will see anything like it. By the time all is said and done here, Otani's probably going to be like number one on this list if I'm still doing this podcast like six years from now. I just, he's incredible, and we've never seen anything like this before, and I don't have the words for it. We, like, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I really not. At least I'm trying not to be. We, we genuinely have never seen anything like this. Now, with that all being said, unfortunately, despite the incredible season, Otani did end the season on a, on a sour note because in August he started feeling forearm soreness and was diagnosed with a strain UCL and underwent Tommy John surgery in September. Obviously, there's a little bit of uncertainty. It sounds like Otani won't pitch in 2024 at all, which is a shame. But again, he basically was an MVP as a hitter in 135 games. I think he'll still be a stupendous player next year. And it's interesting because he's going to be an MVP. He's going to be a free agent this offseason, right? And it's maybe the biggest free agency ever. Like, I cannot think of a free agency that that, that is bigger than this one. And I imagine he's going to end up at one of the Dodgers or the Mets or one of the big name teams. But it's going to be interesting to see where he goes and, and how he does. But... I think we don't even have to look, can he not win an MVP next year? No, he doesn't need the pitching. He's, he can do it with his bat. So uh, I think he's going to be just fine in free agency. I think everyone's going to look at him in the long haul and say, he'll be pitching in 2025 again, all that stuff. I don't think this changes anything for Otani in terms of that free agency or anything like that. But the question is, does it change anything for him on the list? Now, he's just 28 years old, coming off a 10-war season that puts him at 34.7 war in Major League Baseball. And it currently has 171 home runs with give at the plate, not given up as a pitcher. And he's also thrown 481.2 innings with 608 strikeouts and a 3.01 ERA. Now, if you add in his time in Japan, you get an additional 48 home runs, 
as well as another 543 innings pitched with 624 strikeouts and a 2.52 ERA. If you think of it that way, you basically take everything he's done in Major League Baseball and double it is the way you can think of it because they have shorter seasons over in Japan, but the numbers add up to basically take his Major League numbers and double them. And I think you could probably say in 10 seasons total across the U.S. and Japan, he's probably contributed at least 60 war is probably where I would say he's at. I mean, as I've stated on this podcast before, but if you don't remember or new, I consider Japanese numbers or any, you know, other leagues numbers equivalent to Major League Baseball. I don't treat them like they're different. I don't treat them like one league is lesser than the other. If you put it up in Japan, that counts to me. I feel he's right around a 60-war player already, and he's 28 years old. Now, if you look at his numbers as a hitter purely last year, despite the penalty that comes with being a DH, he was still a six-war hitter. So I feel like that's a fair thing to expect next year, is him to put up six war as a hitter. And then after that, in 2025, he should be back to pitching, get back in the eight-war territory, and just keep racking up numbers for at least another four to five years, probably. Now, he'll need another 30-war to catch Beltray at number 13. Now, I think if he strings together even two more eight to ten war of those hitting slash pitching seasons, which I think is reasonable. Again, considering his talent, he's just 28. He just put up ten war in a, only 135 games. I think he goes past Beltre. I think, again, he gets that and then whatever he does over the rest of his career. Because, again, that would be if he did that by the time he's 32. He can chip in three war seasons or whatever, pick one hit or pitch only, and, and keep playing for God knows how long. So I think he go he ends up surpassing Beltre pretty solidly. He just won his second MVP, and and that's just the beginning. I feel like any season in which he pitches and hits at the same time, he's basically a shoe in for the MVP. Because how could anyone match that kind of production? No one could, unless he tanked completely a one or the other in a season in which he did both. I cannot imagine he does a season in which he does both and doesn't win MVP. So you have to think there's more MVPs coming his way. He literally just put up a genuinely historic season that we've never seen before, and I don't think we'll ever see again unless he himself matches it. it there's just not enough words to say what he did, how incredible it was. And I think that pushes him way, way up there, even if in terms of the numbers he hasn't quite put up yet. Now, I wanted to also say for the record, he had 44 home runs on 135 games, the 53 home run pace over a full season. He's DHing next year full-time. He's not pitching, so he's going to play in every game given health. Could we see him chase 60-plus home runs when he gets to hit every day? Because it's certainly possible. I, I think there's a lot more still in store for, for Otani. I think that moves him up ahead of Adrian Beltre. Now, what about George Brett? George Brett had slightly less war than Beltre at 88.6 war, but he also is an MVP to his name, and that's why he's ahead of Beltre. But other than that, I think, honestly, the same logic applies if, if we take everything that separated Beltre and Otani, that we could apply the same logic to, to Brett, since they're basically the same player plus an MVP. So I'm going to bump Otani past both of them, because Otani even has two MVPs already. So, so Otani goes past both of them. Now, the, the interesting one is, what about... Shohei Tani's uh, hero, Ichiro Suzuki. And that's a little tougher, obviously. They're very different players, given Ichiro didn't pitch at all and was more of a leadoff contact hitter than the power hitter that Otani is. Between the U.S. and them, and Major League Baseball, is close to 100 war, if, if not more, and has the and has the MVP award to his name. Does him too, but has the MVP. He's got 10 gold gloves, 
and his legacy is that he changed the way we view Japanese players. Like, everything else, by the wayside, he is who paved the way for Otani. Without Ichiro, we don't get Otani. It's why he's Otani's hero. And he changed the way we look at, at Asian baseball players. He also played for 28 seasons, which is insane. <laughs> this is a really tough one. I think in many ways, Otani is already remarkable and is probably the better player, obviously, because he can pitch and hit and do all those things compared to Ichiro. Or at least, I guess, more historically unique is maybe the better way to put it. But it's hard to simply project Otani to surpass a hunter of war. That, that is a big number. And so for now, I think he does stay behind his idol. I think he stays behind Ichiro, especially when you factor in the cultural aspect of both what he means to Major League Baseball, but also what he means to Japanese baseball. He is an icon, a hero over there to Japanese baseball. So I think he stays behind Ichiro for right now, which makes him the new number 12 on our list. Either way, pretty respectable showing there for for Otani, and it's only going to keep going up. He's just going to keep just keep flying up this list. If I had a prediction, it would be in six years, he's going to be number one on this list. It's just that simple. All right, so we got one last player on our list here, and we've gone through some really interesting players, and unfortunately, all of them, I feel like, dealt with injuries. And this last player on our list is no exception, Mike Trout. He may have had his season derailed the most by injuries of all these players we talked about. He's 32, and he just, man, it just feels like every year it's a different injury and some random thing here. This year, it was a fractured hamate bone on the bottom of his left hand. He, I mean, just absolutely derailed his entire season. Even when he came back, the injury apparently caused him a lot of pain and hampered him throughout the season. He played in just 82 games, and he was good when he played. Not not like Mike Trout good, but he was good. He hit 263 with a 367 OBP and an 858 OPS. He slugged 18 home runs, which is a 36 home run pace. It's nice when he plays 82 games. You can just double everything if you want to get what pace he was on. <laughs> 44 RBIs, 54 runs scored, get 14 doubles, and a 131 OPS+. Plus. Again, he was a very good hitter. It's just not Mike Trout. He was merely like a an above-average mortal, not the god of baseball that he usually is. He was worth 2.9 war. And again, if you just want to take it at what pace, he was a, playing at a 6 war pace. So he was very good when he was healthy. It's just he wasn't healthy for most of the season. He hasn't been for... For years, unfortunately. And I'll admit, hammy bone injuries worry me. They tend to, like, it's not that they linger, but they tend to sap you of your power even for the next year afterwards. So, like, they can they linger in that way that your body just takes a long time to recover. It's like, I've, I see the same thing a lot of times with oblique injuries or things like that where they carry over a little bit. So, I, I expect a little bit of a power drop-off for him. In 2024, not like immensely. I'm just talking. He's not. Uh, I'm thinking less. Not 40 home runs. He's gonna hit 30 something. But it's Mike Trout. So if anyone could overcome this, it's it's him, right? He, the greatest player of our generation. Full stop. Or at least of that generation. Otani's probably taking that crown now. But still, if he can just get healthy, he's still an elite player. When healthy, there's really only one or two players in baseball like Mike Trout, even at 32. So it really just comes down to that. Now, Trout's at 85.2 war, and I still think, regardless, he gets over 90 war in his career, at the very least. That's only five war. He'll easily get that. Again, he's only 32. He has seven years left on his very lucrative contract, so he's not going anywhere. 
And you have to assume he plans on playing that long because why would you walk away for that contract? And I, I think, I think, I absolutely think he'll make five more war in seven years. But can he get to a hundred war? That's 15 more war. Now I think he can. That, that not 15 more. He could put up three five year five war years and be done with it by the time he's 35. But like I said, it all comes down to health. If healthy, he could probably do that in, in two years, right? Get two seven war years like he usually does and be done with it. But he hasn't played in over 119 games since 2019. So I think I need to see it before I I can, I can believe it, before I can predict it, and before I can factor it in. And the reason I put 100 war there is because the player above him is Greg Maddox, who has 106.6 war. And I think to surpass him and his four Cy Youngs, he would have to get to that number or get past it. And I don't know if that's going to happen right now. It's really that simple, though. I can't put him ahead of Maddox until he gets into the 100 war range. So now he puts in a healthy 2024. We come back to this podcast again next year. It's a whole different story. But for now, I think, and it pains me because I love Mike Trout so much. I think Trout stays where he is and can't even think about putting him ahead of, of Maddox or moving him up. I don't move him down either. If you look at who he is above in, I believe, in in Ricky Henderson, I think Trout still is well ahead of Ricky Henderson. Um, so I don't, I'm not knocking him down either. I think anticlimactically, I think Mike Trout's going to stay right where he is at number eight on the list here. And I don't really see too much of a debate there. So we'll have to see what 2024 has in store for him and if he can just get healthy and go from there. That's actually, looking at that, every major, this is actually every current player on the list. We've now, between these two episodes, gone over all of them and analyzed and debated and moved them around on the list. You can see the link to the list in the podcast notes. So if you want to see the whole thing and see where everyone moved around to, check it out. Otherwise, that, that's our episode. Um, I wish the top 30, uh, you know, the, all the, the current players in the top 30 have been healthier this season because I think it would have been a uh, much harder debate. I think we had a lot more debate talking about like Freddie Freeman and Jose Ramirez and Jose Altuve and where we moved those guys around necessarily than we did here with some of these guys just because injuries limited them so much. So hopefully we'll have better health in in 2024 for them. But overall, I think it was a very successful exercise. Let me know if you liked these kind of episodes. Um, we'll do them maybe more often. But that's going to be it for this Saturday. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and for checking out the episode. Next week, I think what we're going to do is probably start jumping into some of the players who either passed away, unfortunately, or retired in, in this season. And look at look, do little career retrospects on them. So I think next week we'll probably do Brooks Robinson, and then who unfortunately passed a few about a month ago or so. And then we'll probably talk about like Adam Wainwright who retired. Maybe we'll finally do Albert Pujols. Go through that list, and then and then we'll start getting into Hall of Fame discussions as we start getting back into Hall of Fame season. So that's what we're looking at coming up for the next couple of weeks. We'll be back in two weeks from now to talk about Brooks Robinson. And in the meantime, everyone enjoy your Saturday. I don't know. In Denver here, it's snowing pretty hard. So not too happy to go outside later today, but I have to go shovel our sidewalks. So I will bid you all adieu. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. 
And until next time, folks, I'll see you then. Thank you so much. This has been the Long Ball Legacies podcast. You can reach me at, at Daniel J. Port on X, or you can reach the podcast at, at LB Legacies, or you can email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com. And until then, see you soon. Have a great one.